Welcome to the Trinity's Podcast, where we explore theories about the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. Do you love God enough to think about Him? Episode 120, Do Christians and Muslims Worship the Same God? Part 1. This is going to be a different episode of the Trinity's podcast. Usually I play the role of the friendly interviewer and have some prepared questions and try to get the person to say what they have to say about the subject and, you know, don't really argue with them that much. Uh, I have the privilege today of being with my friend, Dr. William Valicella, and he and I like to argue about things like philosopher friends do. And I think in this episode, we're just going to eventually argue like a couple of philosophers rather than do a proper interview. The occasion of this is this controversy at Wheaton College in December of 2015. And what happened was a political science professor, first she said she was going to express solidarity with Muslim Americans by donning the hijab herself, just to show that she's kind of with them and uh, is not against them. She's kind of on their side which this is unusual, but it didn't draw the ire of the Wheaton administrators. But then on her Facebook page, she went and said that there should be some sympathy between Christians and Muslims because we worship the same God. And when she said this, that was not cool and got her in big trouble. And interestingly, philosophers who were bloggers got in on this discussion. And among the philosophers who got in on the discussion were me and Bill. And uh, Bill especially has done some very interesting probing philosophical posts on this topic. And some of the Christian philosophers who have discussed this agree with her that yes, it is the same God, just in the sense that they're referring to the same being that we are. And of course, Christians and Muslims have all kinds of disagreements about what God has done and God's properties and so on. Other Christian philosophers have said, no way, are you kidding me? It's not the same being at all. Allah is not Yahweh. It's not the same God. We're talking about different gods. Bill has uh, discussed this very interestingly, and one of the main thrusts of his discussions is kind of a skeptical stance. There's something that could be said on both sides. Maybe there's a deep philosophical issue here. And so anyway, Bill, welcome to the podcast. Well, thank you very much, Dale. Thanks for that uh, wonderful introduction. And I think you summed up the origin of this internet dispute very well. There is the uh, issue in the public square, we, we might call it, but there's also the underlying philosophical questions. And that's what really interests me, uh, is to probe down into the underlying semantic, epistemological, and metaphysical questions that have to do with the question of whether we are talking about or referring to the same God as Christians and as Muslims. So one morning I, I uh, surfed on over to a publication called The Catholic Thing, and I saw that Francis Beckwith had an article on this very topic, and I, I read that, and then I uh, surfed on over to Dale's site to see if he had something to say, and he did, and then I found myself disagreeing with both of them. Both Beckwith and Tuggy think that Christians and Muslims do worship the same God. What I want to say is that they seem to think that it's a pretty easy case to make, that there is reference to one and the same God, numerically one and the same God. 
whereas I don't think that it's so obvious that we are referring to one and the same God. So that got me uh, writing some posts on this. You mentioned the public square aspect or the kind of political and cultural aspect of it. Right. There was one commenter who was much read who basically accused the Wheaton administration of anti-Muslim bigotry. I think we agree that that might be a little quick. We should say a little bit more about the controversy. The Wheaton administrators claim that she was violating their evangelical Christian statement of faith that you have to agree to to work at Wheaton. And it's unclear quite what she was violating because it doesn't say that Christians and Muslims worship a different God. Of course, it commits them to the Trinity and the Incarnation as American evangelicals understand those things. But she agrees with those. But she is saying that they're referring to or even worshiping the same God that Christians are. Do they just understand God differently? And of course, she thinks the Christian side is correct. But anyway, it was a strange case. It's very unclear quite what she would be violating there. And so partly because of that, I think people said, well, isn't this bigotry? You mean bigotry uh, from the side of those who think that Muslims are not referring to the same God as Christians are referring to? Okay, that's just nonsense. Okay, that's what I want to say without beating around the bush. Anybody who says that there's bigotry there because somebody claims that they're not referring to the same God is just a politically correct individual who is not grasping the depth of this question. I mean, this is clearly a very deep philosophical question having to do with reference. Let me just say a little bit about the relationship between worship and reference. Worship presupposes reference in the sense that I can't worship X unless I am referring to X either publicly or privately, either verbally or non-verbally by mere thought and aspiration. Like if I'm by myself just thinking about God in an aspirational sort of way or praying without uttering any words, then that that would fit under the the rubric of uh, worship. And I can't do that unless I'm, in some sense of the word refer, referring to the object of worship. Mm -hmm. On the other hand, I can refer to God without worshiping God. Right. So we can say this, that if we're going to get clear about whether we're worshiping the same God or a different God, we have to get clear about reference. So that's what gets it out of the public square and gets it into the precincts of 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 the technical philosopher. Yeah, so Christian philosophers have something interesting to say about this, and one of the distinctive marks of a philosopher is the ability to precisely distinguish between different questions to sort out ambiguities of language. And so when a philosopher hears, are we talking about the same God, one way they naturally understand that is, are we referring to the same being? Right. Are we talking about the same subject, to be maybe another way to put it? I don't think that's what everybody hears, though. And there is a kind of vehemence in the answer, no, we don't worship the same God, that makes you think there's some meaning being invested in it. It's not just a technical question, are we referring to the same God? Right, it's it's not merely a technical question, but what I would say is that to resolve the, uh, the public square dispute, you would have to dig down to the underlying philosophical dispute and resolve it. Although the, the public square dispute is much richer, and it's, it's a wild and woolly bunch of different questions all mixed together without any clarity about really what, what's going on there. I mean, there's... Yeah, they're political and policy questions. That's, that's right. There's political questions. There are people that have, at some of these evangelical colleges, have taken uh, signed statements of adherence to certain doctrines. So there's all kinds of personal and career questions and 
let me say a few of the issues that I think are in the minds of the evangelical world, because that's my tribe, and I think right. I, I understand where they're coming from. I think that a lot of evangelicals, if they hear someone say that Christians and Muslims worship the same God, I think they interpret that as kind of a, an encapsulated expression of religious pluralism, where all religions are the same, or one's as good as the other. Mm. Either there are no differences between them, or if there are differences, they don't matter. They're not part of the core or the essence of religion. When they hear someone say Christians and Muslims worship the same God, what they're hearing is Islam, Christianity, yeah, whatever. You could pick one or the other, or maybe something else. The old Catholic term for religious pluralism from the 19th century was indifferentism, which I kind of like that term. It's like it's a matter of right. preference. It's a matter of indifference which one you pick, because one's as good as the other. Right. Now, of course, these are very controversial theories that any religion's as good as any other. Right. And uh, it's very hard to work out philosophically. But so this is partly why they say, no, it's not the same God. What they're saying is that our distinctives do matter. The things that we Christians say about God. Yeah, but then why don't they just put it this way, that uh, there are doctrinal differences that are very important without dragging in the notion of same God? That's one thing I would say to them. You can be talking about the same being, and you can disagree about how to understand that being. But the parties to this dispute, Dr. Hawkins, was that her name? And people are intelligent people. So if the issue really has to do with differences in doctrine, why not address it in that way as questions about differences in doctrine rather than address it as in the terms of whether we're worshiping the same God? Well, I think that's what they should do. Do you, do you think that people are clear that by same here we mean numerically the same? No. Or do they mean qualitatively the same or qualitatively similar or very much the same qualitatively? Or? What they're thinking is that when someone says Christians and Muslims worship the same God, the way they hear that is if you look at what Christians teach about God and what Muslims teach about God, there aren't important differences. So either there aren't any differences or there are differences, but they're just a difference of emphasis. How can anybody maintain something like that, that there are not important differences? I mean, whether God is triune or not is an important difference. And if he's possibly such as to be incarnated in a man, then that's a very important difference, right? Yeah, and even getting away from differences in essential attributes, there are this really obvious difference that according to Christianity, God sent his son to die for the sins of all humanity. And according to standard Islamic teaching, Jesus is not in any sense the unique son of God. And he did not die on the cross, and it was not a sacrifice for sin. Right. Well, you just made the point more concretely that I was making by talking in terms of possibly such as to be incarnated. I mean, that's a property that God had from all eternity, according to Christians. According to mainstream Trinitarian uh, theology, yeah. So you say, how could anybody say there's no differences in teaching? Well, you know, there are these religious pluralists, I call them core pluralists, who think that what's really essential to religion is just some kind of mystical experience. And so they devalue the doctrines and the practices and the institutions. And they say what really religion's all about is that experience. And that's the same they think in Christianity and Islam. So to them, then it doesn't matter. Is that the main concern that the Wheaton administrators are concerned to oppose? Well, it's, it's a culture war thing. So in the evangelical world, pluralism is just obviously false. 
Okay. Well, I agree. I think it is obviously false. Although there's different pluralist theories that each have to be answered in a different way. But in their world, pluralism is just off base and ridiculous. But there's a different culture in which pluralism is just obviously true. You know, people right. in the religious studies world, people in the kind of liberal elite society, they're like, how could you not be a pluralist? What are you, a bigot? You know? Right. And so they're conscious that the side that thinks that all good and compassionate people obviously agree with pluralism, that's the elite. And they're conscious that those are constantly encroaching on their territory culturally. Are you saying or implying that the public square dispute is really about pluralism? I'm saying that in the minds of the evangelicals in this controversy, pluralism looms large in the background. And when somebody says Christians and Muslims worship the same God, I think they hear that as like an encoded expression of pluralism. Okay, so It's like pluralism in a matchbook uh, cover summary to them. Looms large in the background, but is not the, the focus of the dispute? That's one of their big theological concerns. Another big theological concern, it's closely related to the pluralism issue, it's this, can any non-Christians be saved? And can they be saved through another religion? And so the hardline evangelical view is all non-Christians go to hell, period. This is like the Augustinian view. People are born guilty of original sin, and unless they get grace through believing in Christ, they're going to hell. It's not quite clear how Abraham and Moses fit into this, but mm. but then on the other hand, a lot of evangelicals are uh, more optimistic, and they think, well, no, there must be a different deal for people who never heard the gospel. Some of them are inclusivists, but anyway, if somebody says they worship the same God, they might hear that to mean... They worship God, God accepts it, and they're saved. So, you know, then there's no urgent need to preach the gospel because a person could just as well be saved through Islam. That's also hovering in the background. Right. The so, so can we say this, that if we distinguish between the public square debate and then the more technical philosophical debate, that in both debates, it's not too clear what exactly the question is. Yeah, there's a whole set of political and policy concerns, but I think for evangelicals, these theological concerns loom, loom larger. You mentioned two theological concerns. One had to do with pluralism, the other had to do with salvation. Yeah, which is closely related to the pluralism discussion because that's an aspect of it. Right. Pluralism is the idea that all religions are in some way equal, uh, or at least all the major religions, and one of the ways in which they could be equal is if they all equally will will get you saved. So it'd be like saying there's one absolute transcendent reality, and all the religions are making reference to it. So the the Hindus may speak of Brahman, and the uh, the Taoists speak of the Tao, and and yeah. so on down the line. And Muslims call it Allah, and Christians right. call it God. Yeah. Right. Well, we we both reject that. Yeah. Okay, but do any participants in this actual public dispute, the Wheaton dust-up, as you call it, do any of these take that extreme pluralistic line? I don't think so. I mean, I would be surprised if the professor did. Isn't this a, a dispute among the three Abrahamic religions, if you allow the phrase Abrahamic religion? Yeah, it is. So we, we, can, we can leave out the Buddhists and the Hindus and the Taoists and so on. Yeah, for purposes of this argument. And also the Mormons, yeah. right? Mm-hmm. Well, let's not get into Mormonism. That's <laughs> but, another subject. 
By the way, let me say that the best, uh, the best blog post so far that I've read on the Internet in the recent times is that by uh, Ed Fazer. Mm -hmm. uh, so you should all go over to his site and read what he has to say. It's a veritable journal article for free. Yeah. How does, how does Ed do this? How does he write these things so fast and so well? But it's, that's a separate topic. It's a mystery. It's a, it's a mystery. Okay. It's a holy mystery. So some evangelicals take a hard line that all non-Christians go to hell. Some evangelicals are more optimistic, and they're what you call inclusivists, like the Roman Catholic theologian Karl Rahner. He thinks that other religions can be a divinely ordained means of salvation, at least for people before they receive the gospel fully, so that at least at some times and places people could be saved by following Islam. That could be a way to relate to God for them. Some evangelicals are there. A lot of evangelicals are ambivalent or they're, they're skeptical. They're like, well, in theory, I guess God could save a non-Christian, but I really don't know if and how often it happens. That's a popular view, just kind of. Look, we're not really told about this in any detail, so we're just not going to take a stand on the issue. But among the conservative evangelicals, which Wheaton, a lot of Wheaton folk are in that camp, among the conservatives, they're sensitive not only to any kind of pluralism, but even to inclusivism. They think that's kind of a halfway step to pluralism. They think that's going too far. So they think that if you make that step, then you're, it's like a slippery slope? Yeah, I think in some people's minds, it, it's uh, compromising with the enemy, basically. Yeah. With the, ec the ecumenical types that are not uh, exclusive enough. But anyway, so I, I don't know what this professor's views are, if she's an inclusivist. I, I would be surprised if she was a pluralist and teaches at Wheaton at all. But they haven't been forthcoming. They have their kind of evangelical inquisition going on, but it's not public, and hmm. nobody, nobody knows what the contents of that are. She hasn't satisfied them in, in their queries about her orthodoxy, basically, but uh, they haven't said what that's about, really. Bill, as you mentioned, there's a public square aspect to this whole debate, which goes far beyond the evangelical American culture. And what's that about? Why are people charging Wheaton with bigotry or anti-Muslim bias? Well, there's this idea that we all have to get along, which who could disagree with that? You don't want people killing each other, being unfair, being unjust, and so on. There's this idea that we all want to get along, and, and here's something contentious. For us to all get along, we have to be some kind of religious pluralist who thinks that all religions are the same. And we need to say nice and friendly stuff about religions. So well, if you say not... we worship the same God, that there's this feeling that that kind of draws people together. And if you say, no, we worship a different God, there's this feeling like you're excluding people from friendship, basically. Well, that, that's a mistake right there. I mean, we obviously have to get along. Okay, especially in a pluralistic society, we have to find a way to get along. Mm -hmm. But it, it would be false, to my mind, to say that that requires that we be pluralists on religious matters. Yeah, there's a cultural assumption that if you think that your religion is true, or if you think it's more true than others, that this is going to necessarily lead to some kind of intolerance. And conversely, they think that if you go around thinking that all religions are the same, this is going to somehow produce tolerance. I don't think that's so. 
I agree with you. You can be highly intolerant and you can be a pluralist. As a matter of fact, that's the situation that you have in current day India in a lot of quarters. You have hardcore nationalist Hindus who are pluralists. They will give you a big speech about how all religions are the same. Yeah, but they're intolerant on the political level. Yeah, they will basically ref- refuse you entry to the country or run you right. out of the country. Okay. Yeah, you're right. What, what prevent about you from converting to another religion. What about the other side of it? The side that thinking that your religion is the most true produces intolerance. Right. Well, no, because you might think that your religion teaches you that you have to tolerate other people's yeah, exactly. <laughs> freedom. Exactly. I, mean, so. I think that Buddhism is superior to Islam, okay? That's based on certain theoretical considerations, and it has nothing to do with treating Muslims unfairly or anything like that. Right, and if, if it's part of your religion that people have free will and that people have to be given autonomy to make their own decisions about religion and that, at least within bounds, people have to be left to practice religion as they see fit, maybe not if it involves killing somebody, you know, but or if you have a Muslim neighbor and a Buddhist neighbor, you're going to hopefully let them be and treat them justly, even though you prefer one to the other. Right. Well, of course, there's limits to toleration. I would have a hard time tolerating a Muslim who was trying to impose Sharia in the United States. Right. There's always limits to toleration right. on anybody's score, no matter uh, how liberal-minded they are. And if, and if the Buddhist was a Tamil tiger, I'd probably have a problem with him. Right. Right. So, so we, I, we, I think we basically agree. So people kind of free associate. They just associate tolerance together with pluralism, and they, they associate intolerance with not being a pluralist. To a kind of unthinking consumer of news in America, well, there's these people saying unfriendly sounding things about Islam, and isn't that bad? Isn't that going to lead to people killing each other? And shouldn't we go around saying things like, we worship the same God just because this will produce more brotherly feelings and Well, this just indicates vibes. the low level of public discourse in these United States. I mean, talk about toleration. We shouldn't tolerate this low level of discussion. We should try to force people to think clearly, Right. Yeah, another good post that was on this topic, uh, since you mentioned our friend uh, Ed Fazer, another good post on this topic was by an uh, analytic theologian named James Anderson, who teaches at Reformed right, Theological right. Seminary. And he said, look, we, we worship the same God. What does that mean? And then he listed like five or six different things it could mean. And uh, we're not going to go through all of those, although that would be a good podcast in itself, I think. But he just, you know, let's get clear on what the question is and what the issue is. Because if it's just a mishmash, we don't want to just judge it. Does it sound nice or does it sound mean? Aren't we concerned about what's true and what's false? Well, right. I think to a philosopher, that's all self-evident. Unfortunately, it's not self-evident to the white, in the wider culture. Or at least it's self-evident to analytic philosophers. There's been a really interesting and and friendly dispute between Christian philosophers that we know in the blogosphere about this. When we hear the question, is it the same God, we think, well, are they referring to the same being? And some say yes, some say no, and some say 
it's a hard to decide question. And a lot of those who say yes and who say no think it's really rather obvious. And here, the maverick philosopher, in true maverick style, is against both sides, <laughs> going to get away from the herd, uh, both herds, and he does not think it's obvious either way. So maybe we could talk about that a little bit, Bill. How do you see that there's a case that could be made for both sides, that it's the same God and it's not the same God? You, Dale, and uh, Dr. Beckwith make a plausible case for sameness of reference based on an analogy. Now, I'll give my own analogy. Beckwith talked about Thomas Jefferson, and you and your post talked about George Washington. But let's take an even more brutally uh, obvious example. So here we are. We're seated at, at my big oak table. And I, pounding on the table, say, this table is solid oak. And you, having some experience with tables, say, no, it isn't. It's got particle board in the mix. If you look underneath it, you'll see particle board, so it can't be solid oak. Are we talking about the same table? Yeah, it's pretty clear that we're talking about the same table because we're using the demonstrative phrase, this table, and we're using it in a perceptual situation where the lighting is good and we see the table and we're sitting around it. So what we say in this case would be that one of us has a false belief. So we have the, the beliefs are contradictory. Solid oak, not solid oak. Those propositions are contradictories, and the beliefs are not just conflicting, but contradictory beliefs. So one of them is true and one of them is false. So either I am, uh, have a, a true belief about the table, or Dale does. As it turns out, I have the true belief about the table. He happens to be uh, simply wrong about the same thing that we're talking about. So then you could say, well, here you have a clear example that can be used to explain uh, the difference between a, a Muslim and a Christian. You could say that they're talking about the same God. If you assume that Christianity is true, then you could say the Muslim has an, a false belief about God. He believes that God is so radically unitarian as to disallow any kind of inner internal structure such as the Trinity, and the, the Christian maintains the opposite. So the Muslim is simply wrong, and the, uh, the Christian is right, but they're disputing about one and the same object. Right. Okay, so let me ask Dale this. Is that a fair way of presenting what you say in your blog post? Yeah, I say that you can be talking about some one thing and disagreeing about what its essential attributes are. And that's certainly true. Mm-hmm. I mean, the statement yeah. you just made is certainly yeah. true. I've given examples, you've given examples, Ed's given examples, many kinds of examples. Examples ad libitum that we could give. But the question is, can you then go from there to applying that to God? Notice one difference. Here we have a a situation of perceptual reference. We both see the table, and uh, the seeing is in a certain sense of the table, and then we can use language to refer to it, this table, or some using other, some, some definite description. So it's clear here because we have an object of sense perception, but is God an object of sense perception? Generally speaking, no. Okay, so there has to be, there's a certain shift here, a certain slide, a certain move that has to be justified. You have to be able to say that these analogies that you and Beckwith and Phaser have given can also be applied in the case of God. Is that right? Mm Mm-hmm. Another issue is this, is that I think you said that if two people are disputing the properties of a putatively self-same, this is my formulation, if two people are disputing the properties of a putatively self-same X, that that entails that there is really one and the same X there, that 
the properties of which they are disputing. Yeah, I mean, you can dispute about fictional characters, you know, two nerds well, get into an argument about Superman or something. I think you use the word, use the word presupposes. If, if we have a mm-hmm. dispute about the properties of something... Then we're talking about the same subject. Then that presu- you, that, wait, yeah. let's, let's, let's do it carefully. Okay. If we're disputing the properties of a certain putatively self-same X, I say putatively because it might not be. I don't want to beg the question. So we're disputing the properties of some putatively self-same X. You want to say that presupposes that there is really a self-same X about whose properties we're disputing. Not exactly, because we can dispute about the properties of imaginary things, fictional things. Okay, let's not, we'll leave that out. Let's say there... We have to be talking about exists, allegedly the let, same let's thing. Say, let's, let's agree on this. God exists, and God, and there is exactly one God. Let's right. agree, let's agree yeah. that... Let's, let's make let, that let's a put it this way. background assumption. Yes. That there exists an X such that X is God, and right. that being is unique yeah. in the sense that there's only one of them. Right. We're talking about something that exists. We're not talking about a, a known non-existent object like the Golden Mountain of uh, That's right. Minon. Right. So you said in your post that, that if we're disputing about the properties of, of something, that that presupposes that there is exactly one thing about whose properties we're disputing. Yeah, it presupposes we're talking about the same subject matter. Okay, that's, that's good. But now you've read your Strawson on presupposition. And as I recall, the way he analyzes presupposition, it includes the notion of entailment, right? So if, if X presupposes Y, then uh, X entails Y. Is that right? I think so. Okay, so we can take out presuppose and put in entails for what you said. So if we're disputing the properties of something, that entails that there's one thing, exactly one thing about whose properties we're disputing. Right. If somebody says, right, but, this, this God is triune, and another person says, this other God is not triune, they have no disagreement. They're okay, talking wait, about wait, two wait, different wait, wait, subjects. Wait, wait, you're going too fast. I want to say that it doesn't entail it, but it's consistent with it, but doesn't entail it. That's what I said in that. What's this, consistent with what? Okay, let me, let me see. Can I use as a cheat sheet my post here? Oh, yeah. Dale thinks that a disagreement about the properties of a putatively self-same X presupposes and thus entails that there really is a self-same X whose properties are in dispute. But that is not the case. Disagreement about the properties of a putatively self-same X is merely logically consistent with there really being a self-same X whose properties are in dispute. In the case of the table we were talking about, the oak table, of course, we know that the dispute is about one and the same item. This is because the table is an object of sensory acquaintance. Its existence and identity are evident but it can be different in the case of God with whom we are not sensorily acquainted. Then I give this example. Of clearly, a Spinozist and a Thomas are not worshiping one and the same God, despite the fact that for both Thomas and Spinozists, there's exactly one God. One of them is worshiping what does not exist. Would you agree with that Spinozist-Thomas example? Both Spinoza and Thomas would say that God exists. Well, yeah, they mean different things well, well, by wait, it, wait, of wait, course. Wait. Yeah. So, so they both say that God exists. Sure. Okay. They both use, interestingly, they both use the Latin word deus. Right. We can't hinge too much on that, but like, Spinoza talks about deus sive natura. Mm-hmm. Of course, Thomas would never use the phrase deus sive natura. But they both believe in God in the sense that they believe that God exists, and they bo- both believe there's exactly one God. So what if somebody said, well, they're talking about the same God, they just have different beliefs about him. Notice also in Spinoza, you got a distinction between natura naturans and natura naturata. 
Spinoza is not saying that, that, that God is identical to the physical universe. He's still got a distinction between the nature that natures and the nature that is natured. But without getting into the details of Spinoza, what would you say to somebody that said that they're, they're talking about one and the same God, but one of them has a false belief about God? Well, obviously, they both cannot be completely correct about God. In your blog, you put it in terms of worshiping. I'm not exactly sure how much Spinoza worships his, quote, God. Well, you've got the phrase, uh, intellectual love of God. Mm -hmm. The Thomist and the Spinozist have uh, a common understanding in the sense that they think there is an ultimate, either the only thing or the most real thing or the most metaphysically basic thing. Right. And having that shared concept, they can then disagree about whether that thing is also nature or whether it's being itself or the Christian God or something like that. So presumably Spinoza would deny that his God is the Christian God in any sense, right? He, uh, he's a critic of this. Is there one in the same, is there numerically one in the same God that they both worship, but they have different beliefs about? Like the table. It's clear that this is one and the same table that we're sitting at, and I have true beliefs about it, and you have some false beliefs about it because of a lack of acquaintance with it. What I think is that there is an ultimate being, but I think that ultimate being is God. So I think they can both refer to what's ultimate and be mistaken about it. So really, I, I think they both have bad theologies in different ways. Yeah, but are you saying that Spinoza and Thomas are referring to the same one and the same being? Yeah. That's not the answer I you were supposed to give. <laughs> uh, I was hoping, you know, at this point you would say, of, of course they're not talking about the same God. Then the question would be, is the Muslim and Christian case like this Spinoza-Thomas case or not? You see, that would be hard to decide, but you're not agreeing with me that Thomas and Spinoza can't be referring to the same God. Well, let me try to give you a, a, a better example then, a really blindingly evident example, as I call it in one other post. You got a Feuerbachian. Okay, let's say you are debate, debating with a Feuerbachian. Now you're going to have to explain to listeners okay, what, so what a Feuerbachian is. Okay, so the reference is. is to Ludwig Feuerbach. And uh, you got to read this guy if you want to understand. Uh, Karl Marx and communism and all that good stuff. Anyway, he, he had this theory that God is a unconsciously projected anthropomorphic projection. And one way of reading him, he's saying what God is. So God is an anthropomorphic projection. So he's a projection that has attributes that are like human attributes. So what we do basically is we take our own human attributes and we crank them up. We maximize them. Mm-hmm. Like I saw, so I'm knowledgeable, but I'm not maximally knowledgeable. Yeah. I'm, uh, and so on. So you, you take the attributes of a human being and you maximize them. And then you project them outside of yourself and you assemble them together in one being. And that's what God is. God is right. the now, if you ask me what God is, I would say, no, God, obviously, the very concept of God is such that God cannot be a projection by human beings. But that's not okay, a theology. Okay, so, that, so now, 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 that's a psychology, question. not a theology. Now, here's the question. Are, are they talking about the same God or not? This is a psychological point about the origin of belief in God. It's not a no, theological he's, no, point. He's, he's saying God is that. He's, he's saying God is a projection. Let's not worry about the, the historical Feuerbach, but a, a follower of Feuerbach who takes him to be saying that 
let's say you got this really crazy pluralist and he says, well, we're all talking about the same thing. I mean, for me, God is a, is a projection. For this guy, God is the warm feeling that he has when he's with the people he loves. God is a feeling. And another guy says, well, he's, God is, uh, you know, what Christians say he is. And so we're all talking about the same thing. We're all talking about God, right? <laughs> we're all using the word God. Look, I'm sure there's an atheist out there somewhere, Bill, who's named his cat God. Just right. so he can say, go away, God. Okay. So go eat your cat what food, God. Get, what I'm trying to get you to, to agree to is that when the difference between the senses of these expressions gets wide enough, you're not talking about the same thing anymore. He, yeah, Feuerbach, see, see, as think, you explained him, he's not talking about the same thing. He seems to be eliminating God from his view of the world. And, exactly. In, in other words, um, if, you say, if you say that God is an anthropomorphic projection, that's a way of saying that God doesn't exist. Sure. Okay, so they can't be talking about one and the same thing. If X exists and Y does not exist, they can't be identical, right? Numerically identical. Yeah, I mean, look, he, he wants to change the subject to talking about where belief in God comes from. Well, no, because but you, he you doesn't... can also read it as an ontological claim. It's, it's what God is. Okay, forget about it. No, there is no, there is no God. His, his ontology is God-free, right? That's what I'm trying to get you to see that could be the case with the Muslim, that he's talking about a non-existent God. But, but you see, to get you to the, to the Muslim-Christian difference, I, wanted, I used Spinoza and, uh, and Thomas. But I couldn't get you to see that they can't be talking about the same God. They could both be talking about whatever is ultimate, in my view. Is there something that exists? You see, if something exists, it's completely determinate. In other words, it... It's not an incomplete object in my own sense. It's, it's completely, for every property you take, it either has it or it has its complement. Now God is like that, right? That's what Kant meant when he referred to him as, or the Wolfian school when they called God an ens realissimum, that he's completely determinate with respect to every property. So when you talk about... That's not so obvious. I mean, you might think a being could be indeterminate with respect to some mental property. Um, okay, yeah, maybe I have but, to put a little... Uh, rip, rip, eliminate certain intentional properties or but like take this table as it is in itself for every uh, non-intentional property like it, it it could be indeterminate with respect to whether dale tuggy is desires to own it right but intrinsically it just is what it is right intrinsically it is completely determinate it's not it it doesn't violate the law of excluded middle yeah you wouldn't want to say it's it's holy oak and it's not holy oak just yeah, because Dale say, well, thinks it's, not it's either, part of the board. It's neither brown or not brown. You couldn't say that. Yeah. It's got to be one or the other. Okay, now I want to say, since you believe, although I don't believe it, but you, you believe that God is a being among beings, then we have a, a seamless transition from the table to God in, in respect of determin, determinateness. That just as this table is wholly determinate, God is wholly determinate, right? The reason I'm hesitating is I think that a thinking being can be uh, ha have intentions that are indeterminate and uh, desires that are possibly metaphysically vague. But look, um, your table example, okay, either Bill's right or Dale's right. One of them is quite mistaken about the table. Yeah. Dale's concept of Bill's table is satisfied, or Bill's concept of Bill's table is satisfied. It's not like but they're not two, both satisfied. It's not, that, it's not that there's two tables. There's not yeah. Bill's table and Dale's table. Right. But if there were Bill's table and Dale's table, then one of them would be a non existent table. Right. Or, or instead of, or I could say one of them would not exist. 
So in a manner of speaking, you could say that Dale's Bill's table doesn't exist. But that's just to say Dale is mistaken about Bill's table. Right. But you think that if, if there's a dispute about the properties of something, then that entails that there is exactly one thing about whose properties you are disputing. Only if we're assuming that we're actually referring successfully. We're both referring successfully and we are really disagreeing. We're not talking about two different things without knowing it. This brings us to the question of successful reference. You see, it seems to me that to really dig deep into this whole problem, you have to start asking how is reference accomplished or achieved? I mean, how is it that a word or a phrase uh, latches onto a hunk of reality? There are theories that come out of Frege and Russell and Searle and, and an ocean of literature has been written about this, which could be called descriptivist. Let's say we're, we have a name what makes a name refer to its nominatum, its the object to which it that it names, mm-hmm. is the satisfaction by the object of the definite description that is associated with the use of the name, as I said, use of the name, by an individual, typically in a community of language users, which are using the name in the same way. Right? So... This brings us to the question of whether God is, is, a, is a proper name. Let's, let's assume that God is, is, a, is a proper name, but its reference is achieved by satisfaction of a description. So then you need some description that you would associate with the use of that name in this community. Mm-hmm. And then you could say that the, the, the name refers if and only if there exists an X such that X satisfies the description. So reference really has to do with satisfaction of a description. Right. That's a mainstream view. Right. Now, Kripke, as you know, uh, building on Mill, has a different understanding of names. So that a name, in fact, if I understand Kripke, and you can correct me if if I'm wrong, when we use Socrates in our context as philosophers, we're not referring to somebody's cat. We know that we're referring to some guy in the past that was a Greek philosopher. Mm -hmm. Now, tell me if I'm right about this, that on Kripke's view... Everything we believe about Socrates could be false, and all of our descriptions that we associate with the use of the name Socrates could not have anything satisfying them, and we'd still be referring to Socrates. I think he's committed to that. Yeah, he's committed to it, uh, although he doesn't start with that. What he starts with, he, he points out that, well, you know, well, let's say, uh, so, so Socrates was the teacher of Plato, but he might not have been the teacher of Plato, right? Mm-hmm. But a name somehow uh, gets at the thing that it names in every possible world in which it exists. So he thinks of names as rigid designators. So a rigid designator being one that designates the same object in every world in which the object exists. Mm-hmm. So if God is a rigid designator and God exists in every world, then the name God always picks out God without any descriptions. In other words, the reference is not mediated by a description. It's not routed through the sense of, of, the, of the name, 
but it goes directly to it. Is that the way you understand a direct reference theory? Yeah. So the first theory might point you in the direction of, no, it's obviously a different God because the standard Christian type of description of God is going to differ from the standard Islamic description of God. That's exactly right. That's, that's what I'm getting at. So, and the second one might point you into thinking that they are the same because he talks about baptizing a term in the initial use. Somebody uh, uses a term to refer to individual, and then somehow this gets passed on, this reference gets passed on, and we, we're still able to refer using words that were previously attached to that same being. This points you in the direction of thinking that you could be referring to a being even with a wildly wrong set of assumptions about it, right? So, right, right. I mean, maybe an example would be George Washington, and we come up with a big mythology about all of his exploits and his superpowers. And we would think people who did this were pretty weird and were pretty wrong about George Washington. If they thought he could fly or slay the British with laser beams that shoot out of his eyeballs... But as weird as that would be, we would, we could still maybe agree that, yeah, they're talking about George Washington, all right, um, at least if we're taking this direct reference theory approach. Because there was an initial baptism of somebody as George Washington, and the name was passed on with each person who passed it on having the intention to use the name in the same way that it was used by the people that gave it to him. And so there's a chain of transmission causal chain whereby the the name comes down to us today. So when I use the name, I refer to the same being that uh, the initial baptizer referred to. And it's conceivable that George Washington have none of, none of the properties that we nowadays associate with him. It's conceivable, but it has to be said that a lot of people, and I mean a lot of philosophers, have the intuition that Surely there have to be some limits as to kind of how far off the description can get. Right, but, but I'm, I'm wondering if, if that's an uh, entailment of Kripke's theory, that, that it, it's at least possible that the original uh, object of reference have none of the properties that we now associate with the use of the name. I think so. I think so. I mean, there might be someone who had a version of that theory that would dispute it. And there are hybrid theories that bring in elements of both in some ways. But Right. Um, One point I want to make here is that worship presupposes reference. Surely. And so therefore, to answer the question whether we're worshiping the same God, we have to know whether we're referring to the same God. And to know whether we're referring to the same God, we have to understand reference. And to understand reference... There are a number of different questions, uh, and one of them has to do with the exact mechanism of reference. Is a, a descriptivist semantics the right way to understand the mechanism of reference, or is some causal theory the right way to understand it? There's also other questions about how reference, which is usually a linguistic topic, relates to intentionality, which I would argue, following Roderick Chisholm, that linguistic reference presupposes intentionality. So... Or you could call it thinking reference. So linguistic reference. Our ability to refer to something mentally. Right. That's at the base of uh, any kind of linguistic reference. Since, as Dale said uh, to me before, I mean, uh, just as guns don't kill people, words don't (laughs) refer to anything just by themselves. Right. We refer to things using words. And presumably we could refer to things even if we had no language. We could just... That's a difficult, it's a diff- it's a difficult question to know whether we could have thoughts if we didn't have the, at least the capacity for, a linguist, for a linguistic expression. But 
however you answer that, I, I think what's at the bottom level here is thinking reference, which can occur without the, the use of uh, words. Right. So we all believe in reference in the sense that we know that we think about different things and we use words to refer to different things. But um, as far as coming up with a perfectly general theory about how words refer to things, that's a really difficult philosophical topic. It's an area that philosophers disagree about. So you might think we're just, we're suffocating a cloud of skepticism here. We thought there was going to be an obvious answer to this, is it the same God question? And well, if you think the, the real heart of the question is the question, are we referring to the same being or not? You might think that this is unanswerable, at least until you have a general theory of reference. And I would add to that that the difficulty of the reference question and the, perhaps the insolubility of it percolates back up into the public square question to infect it as well. As a general metaphilosophical claim, I would say that all hot-button issues are ultimately, at bottom, philosophical issues. For example, abortion. I mean, that's a hot-button issue, and people get all bent out of shape about it. But if you start to try to understand it, you're going to have to ask hard questions about substance and accident, potentiality and actuality and rights and persons, identity over time, and so on and so forth. If you, if you seriously try to tackle the abortion question, you're dragged into these difficult questions in metaphysics, philosophy of language, epistemology. Yeah, about logic, human persons specifically. About persons, but also about, is a person a substance, like mm -hmm. Boethius said? If it's substance, then you got an Aristotelian framework, in which how is change to be understood? Potency and act, the potentiality argument against abortion, so on and so forth. So I want to say that in this uh, same God dispute, the wheat didn't dust up, as Dale calls it, that we have the same kind of problem. When you, you dig into it, you realize that you can't, as uh, somebody said, uh, solve it with a philosophical flick of the wrist, the way it seems that some of the commentators want to do. Well, we'll end on that skeptical note, and next week we'll come back, and I will foolishly hazard an answer to this question and see if the skeptical smoke can be penetrated. And Bill will probably try to argue that, no, you're still stuck in the impenetrable fog. Or of the apparatic. We're stuck in an apparatic fog. Muchachos. Bill, thanks a lot for talking about this with me today. Well, thank you very much. This week's thinking music was the track Three Pound Universe by Jarrus. We got a new review in the US iTunes store this week. A user named Crossword316 gives us five stars and says, Inquisitive, informative, idealistic, and an impeccable podcast for Christian truth seekers. If you're looking for a podcast that interacts with tough theological questions, especially but not limited to the nature of God debate, this is a must-hear. Dale Tuggy is an intelligent and graceful host who offers his opinions but allows those with differing opinions to state their own cases. The Trinity's podcast embodies what Christian debate and truth-seeking should be like, and I have learned a great deal by listening. Thanks so much for that very kind review. If you'd like to leave a review in the iTunes store for your country, I've got some instructions on how you can do that at trinities.org slash blog slash review.
Thanks for listening. We'll see you online at trinities.org. Till next time, don't forget to love God with all your mind.